We certainly want to, again, welcome everybody here this morning. It's good to see everyone. I hope that the lesson today will serve as interesting and helpful. I guess I was somewhat inspired by Matt's class as we've been thinking about some denominational groups and the things that they believe and the things that they practice and analyzing all of that in light of what the Bible teaches and hopefully analyzing ourselves and the process to make sure that we here are always striving to do things in the proper way. And so this lesson kind of runs in the same vein. We're going to start by noticing several verses here in Matthew chapter 23, the first part of that chapter. Usually when we think about Matthew 23, we think about the rebuke that Jesus gives towards the scribes and the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. But before he launches into that particular portion of uh, his speech, uh, he has some other things to say that I think are very pertinent to what we want to look at together today. So starting in verse 1, it says, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. And he said, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens that are hard to bear. They lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move one of them with their own fingers. But all their works, he says, they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad. They enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues. They love greetings in the marketplaces to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. That word meaning teacher. But then notice in verse 8 he says, But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. The title of the lesson, in the form of a question, is, Are you the pastor? I've been asked that question before, at different times. A visitor will come in, or someone unfamiliar with the congregation will come in, and I'll be approached, are you the pastor? And that's an interesting question. I think as we get into some things this morning, we're going to see that that's a pretty common thing to hear these days. It's become almost a cultural thing in regards to how we look at leadership in the church. But what we want to get at this morning is how is that term properly used? Because I think we're going to see as we look at some things that the way that most people would use that term 
and understand that term is actually uh, erroneous when we compare it with the scriptural use. So, first things first. Pastor is not a title, and we need to stop using it that way. That's the way that most in the world and most in the religious world would use that word as a title. They will say, well, pastor so-and-so said this, or you need to go talk to pastor James or John or whatever you want to put in the blank there. And this is not, of course, the only word that we see this type of application used. We're going to talk about some other examples. Sometimes you'll see the word reverend used, right? Reverend Jackson said this in his sermon or something to that effect. But as we think about this word and others similar to it in light of the scriptures, it's actually used as a description of the work that a particular man might be doing, one who would meet the qualifications set forth First uh, Timothy 3 and, and uh, Titus chapter 1 as well. We see those things outlined. And it's interesting, especially with the term pastor, because if you do a search for that word, uh, a Bible search, you'll find one result. Uh, it is used once in the entirety of the pages of Scripture, and we find that in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, where here he's talking about the body of Christ, and he's talking about how there's different members within the body that have different functions, just like our own physical body. We have different parts, different members that have different functions, but all work together. He says, he himself, speaking of Christ, gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. And we could even just keep reading there to continue his thought. The reason for these different roles, we might say, these different types of work, is for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to be a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, what does this word mean? When we look it up, we look up the original Greek word that's translated to pastors there. Uh, poimain, I believe, is the correct pronunciation of that Greek word, but the literal definition is a shepherd. Now, we see variations of that Greek word uh, in other places, and in those places it's translated shepherd. And, of course, we see that word throughout uh, the Old Testament as well, which is a, a different language, but we see the, the description of those who were shepherds, and we see that used in a spiritual application, and oftentimes we see it applied to uh, the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, of course. But why would this word be used? Well, it's descriptive of what these men that are being talked about here are doing. Uh, this would be one and the same as the word elder, as we often see in the New Testament especially. Uh, at times we'll see the word bishop used, and we're going to talk about both of those words in a minute. But each of those words is meant to describe 
the role that that particular person is playing in relation to the body of Christ. Let's notice a couple examples here. Uh, back here in the book of Acts, in chapter 20, in this context, starting in about verse 17, we see that the Apostle Paul had a meeting with the elders from the congregation in Ephesus. And he had a number of things that he wanted to say to them because it was going to be the last opportunity that he had to meet with them in person. But jumping down to verse 28, as he's giving them instruction, reminding them of their role within that congregation, he says, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Notice the way he describes uh, the members of the body. I might say as sheep, right? As a flock of sheep. He says there, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to, notice, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so the role of an elder, the role of a pastor, is to help shepherd the local congregation. The local congregation does not belong to them, as is made plain here. Whose is the flock? Well, it's Christ. He's the one that purchased it with his blood. Uh, but these men who meet these qualifications and step into this, we might say a leadership type role, are tasked with helping to guide the flock according to the precepts of Christ. We might also come back to 1 Peter chapter 5 and... We're going to refer back to the first part of this uh, chapter a couple different times here. So if you have a bookmark, you can just maybe uh, bookmark the page. But we're going to notice in particular here verse 2, where again, the instruction that Peter is giving to elders of whom he describes himself as a fellow elder. Notice again, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, so there again, that's important to note. Uh, elders are not over multiple congregations in different places. It's a, a local thing. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. Uh, don't do so by compulsion, but be willing to serve in this way. Uh, don't do it for dishonest gain, but yet be eager. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock, he says. And so, as I said, we have similar things with other words that are used to describe this same position in the New Testament, uh, especially the words or the terms bishop and elder. Now, bishop, of course, is another term that you'll see applied much the same way as pastor. At times, you'll hear somebody described as bishop so-and-so, and it's used as a, a title, right? Uh, but that's not the way it is used in the New Testament. Rather, again, we see it as a word used to describe the work that a particular man might be doing. Looking at bishop, first of all, the Greek word there, episkopos, literally defined is an overseer. And we saw that used just in what we had already read, actually, uh, especially as we think about what we read there in 1 Peter 5, and again, I have that reference there. 
But again, you notice the language of what we just read in 1 Peter 5 and, and verse 3 particular. Uh, this is not a, a position where someone is lording over the congregation. And, you know, one of the interesting things about the eldership is there's never just one man that's appointed the elder, right? There's always at least two. There's a plurality. And that's by divine wisdom that it's set up that way. Because when you have just one person in charge, quote-unquote, well, we can see what that leads to by looking at uh, certain denominational groups that have followed that kind of a trend. And we'll, we'll talk more about that as we go on. Uh, but we, we see the idea put forth here that uh, this is not someone who is lording over as though they have all the authority, that they're making all the rules, they're deciding what is right and wrong for the flock, but rather they are overseeing the point being to guide in accordance with Christ's commandments. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, the reference there is where we see the term bishop used in the New Testament. Elder is really the most common of these words that are used to describe this particular office. We see that more often than not when it's being talked about in the New Testament. And that word in the Greek is presbyteros, which designates one who is older, uh, or perhaps the eldest among the group, as typically you would expect uh, those that are older to uh, not be a novice, as is the prescription there in 1 Timothy 3 and 6. As you look down through the qualifications for someone who would step into this role, that's one that's explicitly defined. Uh, this cannot be someone who's a novice, who is new to the faith, a new convert, in other words, who hasn't had any experience, any time to mature in his understanding. Uh, this is somebody who has taken the time to grow in the faith and have that wisdom so as to be able to instruct and help lead others in the right path. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody who is, you know, in their 80s or 90s who would be stepping up to serve as an elder. It could still be somebody who is younger than that, but the idea here is that it's not somebody who is new to the faith. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 23, we see that terminology used as we think about the apostle as he went about the known world at that time, spreading the teachings of Christ and establishing different congregations of the Lord's church. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 23, if I can find the right page here, uh, it says that when they had appointed elders in every church, notice again there the plurality, it's important, uh, when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commanded them, uh, or commended them rather, to the Lord in whom they had believed. So this is actually, they had gone over a certain course and then they were returning back through where they had been previously and now appointing uh, these men to help guide the flock in each individual location. And again, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 is where we see that word used and either Peter using the word to describe his own particular function within the body. Now, interestingly enough, as we've considered these different examples, uh, one of the ones that we had mentioned at the beginning that you often hear is actually not in the Bible at all. Uh, the term reverend, uh, you won't find that used of, of anyone, really, in the Bible. Now, the idea of giving reverence 
is certainly in the Bible, and we understand that that belongs exclusively to God. We are not to give reverence in the sense of, you know, considering somebody to be just so high and holy that we must bow before them or kiss their ring or something of this nature. Uh, that is not appropriate. Uh, we must only give reverence in that sense to God himself. We might just jump back here to Psalm 89 for a moment. And notice verse 7. The psalmist there says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held, notice, in reverence by all those who are around him. Now, since we're on this track, I thought it appropriate to continue right along and look at a couple other examples that we often hear, especially in regards to titles that people are given in the religious world. Now, especially in Catholicism, we see these following ones used. We know that certain ones in that particular religion are designated as priests. And as such, when people would talk to them or refer to them, you often hear the, the term father used. Now, we saw that directly uh, rebutted by Christ himself when we read there uh, at the beginning in Matthew chapter 23. Uh, Call no man father on the earth, for one is your father who is in heaven, Jesus said. Uh, but yet you have people that are elevating certain men in these roles that they have created, and they are referring to them by these titles that Jesus himself said are not appropriate to be using. Now the interesting thing about priests is that when you study in the New Testament, we actually find that the Bible teaches that all Christians are priests. We are all part of the priesthood uh, in worship and honoring our Lord and, and our God. A couple different passages bear this out to us in 1 Peter chapter 2. We could turn here and note what Peter says in verses 9 and 10 there. If I can go to 1 Peter and not 2 Peter, that would be helpful. Uh, verses 9 and 10, 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, You are a chosen generation. He's speaking to Christians here. Notice, a royal priesthood a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. Once you'd not obtained mercy, but now you have. We can also jump over to the Revelation letter. And notice there in chapter 1, as John is introducing this letter, Verse 4, he says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and notice, has made us kings and priests to his God uh, and the Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
And so you think about that Old Testament setup that the Jews had where there were certain ones appointed at priests and there was the high priest. And you go to Hebrews chapter 4 and you notice there who is our high priest. Well, Christ himself is the high priest. And so that's an interesting thing to, to recognize, especially in light of what we're looking at here. Now, another word that you often hear, especially in the realm of Catholicism, is the term saint. You hear Saint Jude or Saint Valentine or, you know, there's all kinds of different men and women who've been designated as saints, right? And that's all based upon certain criteria that they have put forth and just kind of as a, I think it's a humorous aside, uh, did you know that to become or to be designated as a saint, one of the requirements is that in your lifetime you perform not one miracle, but actually two miracles. So it kind of is funny to me because you imagine somebody actually being able to perform a miracle and then having some official from the Catholic Church say, well, good job, you got one more to go. <laughs> it's like, okay. Uh, but nonetheless, it's, uh, it's ironic when we look at how the Bible uses the term saint because, again, it's something that's not an exclusive designation held for you know, some upper echelon of uber-Christian. It's actually all those that are sanctified by the blood of Christ. And we see that illustrated in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, among other places, but I think this is uh, one such place that makes it very plain. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just looking at the first three verses of the chapter. Uh, Paul introducing this particular letter. Uh, he says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, notice, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So all those who are sanctified in Christ, all those who are walking according to his precepts are designated as saints, as set apart to be holy. It's really what that word is all about. So, in all of these examples, these are words that are used as descriptions. They are not ever used as a title for anyone, uh, so as to somehow elevate that person above everyone else. And so, sadly, it seems like we said that uh, the world today largely has done just the opposite of what Jesus had prescribed in regards to calling people by certain titles and elevating them above other men and women. Now, another interesting thing that I thought we would look at, again, culturally, uh, it seems that we have shifted the responsibilities of the eldership, of those that are pastors, bishops, however you want to describe them, uh, on to preachers. That's another interesting phenomenon. If you stop and think about how people typically look at a church setup, well, the pastor is the guy in charge, right? And he does all the things. He makes all the decisions. He makes all the calls. You know, he's the person that does all the things. And everybody else is just kind of like a, a peon out here that has to submit to his 
uh, infinite wisdom or whatever you want to describe it as. And so I thought we'd look at some examples of that that I found to be interesting. For example, when someone is sick, who do we call? Well, oftentimes uh, the preacher gets called, right? Hey, this person's sick. You need to go visit them. Now, is there anything wrong with the preacher going and visiting sick people? Well, of course not. That's not the point. But if you look back here with me in James chapter 5, what does James prescribe in regards to these types of situations? Uh, he asked the question there, verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Notice, let him call for the elders of the church. <laughs> And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So that's kind of interesting, isn't it? And so that's one example where uh, the Bible would say uh, that this type of thing would first fall into the realm of the eldership, but often we, we apply that missa in a different way. Uh, likewise, when someone is spiritually sick, who's the first person that we send? Well, better have the preacher go talk to him, right? Now again, it's good that the preacher would do that, uh, but also it's good that the elders would do that. And in fact, as we're going to notice some of these examples here, it's, it's actually good that every member would be willing to do that. And in some cases, it's, it's actually, as we're going to see the instruction that we find here in Matthew 18, it's, it's best not to involve even the preacher or the elders or anybody else if it's some kind of personal uh, matter. Galatians chapter 6, notice here with me, first of all. Galatians 6, in the very first verse there says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, who should that be? Well, it's not just one person in the congregation that's spiritual. We're all supposed to be spiritual, right? So you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. We come back to Jesus' words, like we said in Matthew chapter 18 there. And we look starting in verse 15. Moreover, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell the preacher right away so the preacher can go yell at him. No, <laughs> doesn't say that, does it? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. Now, there might be a scenario where that initial attempt to make a correction doesn't go well. It says in verse 16, if, if he's not willing to hear you, well, then go and take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. But if he refuses to hear them, at that point it says, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, then at that point there becomes a a means of withdrawing from him. Uh, let him be like a heathen or a tax collector if he's persistent in that sin. Verse 18, Assuredly I say, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say that if two or three agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them 
by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Another example, who is often looked to regarding major decisions that pertain to the congregation. And I've had this happen where people will approach me with something and I'll say, well, I don't know, talk to Jim and talk to, <laughs> talk to Eldred, right? Um, it is not the preacher's role to be making major decisions for the congregation. It's the preacher's role to preach the word and what it really boils down to. Uh, and again, we've looked at Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 earlier there where uh, the instruction for the elders is to oversee and to shepherd the flock in accordance with Christ and his commands. Uh, over here in Hebrews chapter 13, you look there at verse 17, and the Hebrew writer here says, Obey those who rule over you, be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give an account. Uh, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So here again, designating that the elders are the ones who are looking out for the souls of the congregation, who are making certain decisions to try and make sure that the flock stays faithful, etc. And one final example I thought of there was evangelism. And sometimes we expect that uh, it's only the preacher who is to be evangelizing or teaching anybody. Now, this person really needs uh, learned up on a certain subject, so better send the preacher over there. Well, again, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but if that's the mindset that we get into as a member of a local congregation, that it's always this person's job or that person's job, well, then what are we doing, Right? And oftentimes, when we misunderstand things in this way, it leads to us not even doing the things that are expected of us as individual members. And that's, that's really the big thing here. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, I want to jump there first because that's, in general application, Jesus talking to the entirety of his, of his audience says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's the responsibility of all of us. Now, it's interesting you come back here to 1 Timothy chapter 5. You know, one of the qualifications of an overseer, of a pastor or a bishop or an elder, is that they are apt to teach. And sometimes I feel like maybe we overlook the significance of that. And it's, I, I feel kind of highlighted here, actually, in 1 Timothy 5. If you look at verse uh, 17 and 18 there, it says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So you go some places and it might be that an elder is also, you know, the designated preacher in a certain place. And there's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, it says, you know, we should respect him that much more for taking on maybe an additional responsibility for himself. Uh, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, uh, for the labor, laborer is worthy of his wages. 
So every member of the congregation can be involved in teaching the word and being the light of the world. And in fact, that is the way it, it ought to be. So I go through all that not to try and uh, preach myself out of a job here, but uh, rather just to help us understand things in a biblical sense, because sometimes we can kind of get caught up in the way that most people in the world look at things in regards to some of these responsibilities in the church. Coming back to this overall modern concept of the pastor, if you really think about it, it's kind of akin to the Pope in a lot of ways on a smaller scale. You know, you think about the Catholic Church and you've got, you know, uh, it kind of encompasses all parts of the globe, but then the Pope is over all of it, right? But sadly, it seems like we've taken that kind of a concept, which we know to be against the the way that God has set up the church, and we've looked at several examples of that this morning, but we've kind of made it on a smaller scale. Well, well we're not going to have a pope, but we'll have the pastor, right? And he's just over this one group here, but it's kind of really the same thing in the way that it's treated. And what we always have to remember is that there is one head of the church, and that is Jesus Christ who died for it. Matthew 16 and 18, as he spoke to Peter there, and complimented Peter for his good confession. On this rock, I will build my church. It doesn't belong to anybody else. Nobody else is involved in dictating what my church is to be, uh, what the commandments are in regards to what my church is to follow, etc. In Ephesians chapter 1, again, we see this made plain. There at the end of that first chapter, it says, God has put all things under his feet, that is Christ, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, back in 1 Peter 5, where the first three verses there, Peter's talking about the role and responsibility of the eldership. In verse 4, he designates that when the chief shepherd appears, uh, you will receive the reward for your, your efforts in the kingdom. The chief shepherd, of course, being Christ. And so just to, again, kind of double down on this, this point about not elevating any man into the position of a fellow servant in the church of Christ, uh, I want us to notice the, the attitude of Peter. Now, I use this example especially in light of the idea of the Pope, because if you look at the history of the Catholic Church and what they believe, uh, it is their belief that Peter was the first Pope. Okay. Now, I want us to look at how Peter behaves himself here, where he has this opportunity to go into this Gentile household to preach the gospel, and he is received as though he is, you know, God on earth. Uh, people are falling down to worship him, etc., Notice here in Acts chapter 10 and verse 25, it says, As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Now you imagine that playing out with the Pope in modern day scenario. Probably not much would be thought about that. People do that all the time. They, Like we said, they kiss his ring and they fall down before him. They elevate him to the place of, of God. What did Peter do? Verse 26 says, Peter lifted him up and said, Stand up, I myself 
am also a man. I'm no better than you are. I am not to be worshipped. I am not to be put on a pedestal. And we have to guard against doing that with one another. We are all servants. And that leads us to the, the final point this morning. While some members of a congregation do take on more responsibilities as they step into perhaps the role of an elder or uh, step into the role of a preacher or even, uh, we didn't really talk much about deacons this morning, but uh, that is another role we see in the local congregation, those that would step up to serve, we might say in an official way, as a servant to the congregation, to the church. While that is the case, we all must be working. And we all must remember that we are members of one another. And to illustrate that, I'd like us to come to 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to read a, a good chunk of this chapter here, starting in verse 12. The apostle here writes and says, As the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are still one body. He's talking about a physical body, the one that you have, the one that I have. He says, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We've all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but it is many. And notice verse 15, he says, well, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, well, I'm not of the body. Well, does that make that true? Well, no. And just because I don't have a particular function within the body doesn't make me any less a part of it or any less important, you see, is the point that he's making. If the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, well, then where would the hearing be? And if the whole body was a giant ear, well, then where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, then in essence, where would the body be? You wouldn't have a body, you'd just have a giant nose or a giant eyeball as he's using these illustrations here. And then you wouldn't have the complete functionality. Verse 20, he says, Now indeed there are many members, but yet again one body. I cannot say to the hand that I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Much rather, those members of the body which perhaps seem to be weaker are actually necessary. And, you know, I've made this point before as we've talked, I'm sure, just in reading this passage and thinking about this passage, but you look back over the knowledge that men have had of this physical body that we all possess down through the years, and you jump back in time and... You know, they used to think, well, the appendix, you just cut that out, you don't need that, that's just extra. Uh, or any of these other examples of what used to be considered just useless parts of the body. Well, as our understanding has advanced over the years, they've come to find what, actually, you probably should have kept that in there if you could, because it does actually do something important. Right? Everything is important. Everything is there for a reason. And so it is with the body of Christ. 
Verse 23, those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. Our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part, that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism, there should be no divide, there should be no uh, disconnect in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, then all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and you are members individually. So it's very important that we keep these things in mind as we seek to function together as the church. So again, I hope that as we've studied through these things that you found it to be beneficial and perhaps it will help you as you engage in certain conversations with those who uh, have a skewed understanding of these types of matters and that as we've studied some of these scriptures, it will help you be more savvy and pointing out from the Bible what is the truth. And that's what we're always to be concerned with. As we conclude the sermon then, I would ask the question of all those who are here, uh, first and foremost, are you a member of the body of Christ? Uh, we, we know how to become a member of the body of Christ. That's outlined various different places in the New Testament. We could go to the original outline, you might say, in Acts chapter 2, where the very first individuals made that decision. They asked the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? And what did Peter say? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 47, it says that the Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved. Those that followed that prescription, those that repented of their sins and put on Christ in baptism were added not by men through some kind of vote or some kind of, you know, organized means, but the Lord, as he saw souls who were obedient to his son, added them to the body of Christ. And that's a, a beautiful thing. And that's something that you can be a part of this morning. And if, if you have that need, we would love to assist you with it. If you're here likewise, and as a, as a member of the Lord's body, you recognize perhaps that you haven't been functioning the way you should, uh, there's several here who understand how difficult it is when a certain member of your body is not functioning correctly. I think about Carla just because, well, she's my wife, but uh, I mean, for almost a year now, she's not had use of her leg. And I know what a strain that is on her. I told her yesterday, I wish I could fully... Uh, completely understand that and, and empathize with that. I've never gone through that myself, but I know what a strain it's it's been for her. And I know several others have gone through very similar things. Laura had an issue with um, with her leg and different ones have had different members of their body not be functioning right. And it's hard to get around and do things like you'd like to do when all the members aren't functioning right, isn't it? But in those situations, what's the rest of the body do for that member that's 
that's injured or needs attention. Well, it, it gets that attention, doesn't it? And that's what we need to do for one another as members of the body of Christ. If somebody is struggling, somebody is having an issue spiritually, well, we're here to pray for you and help you so that we can all be at, at 100% for the Lord. So whatever your need is this morning, if we can be of assistance to you, we would ask you simply just to come up to the front at this time while we sing and let those things be known.